Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the effervescent Teos Abadia. Hey Teos, you are looking fine and in fine fettle. I think that's the term. Sure, that sounds yeah. like uh, my Fey Lord, but um, fine fettle, it's uh, who commands me. But uh, yeah, you know, I just had a bunch of work meetings and they're all great and everything, but it's nice to see you. It's a delightful contrast to the rest of the day. So. Yes, to real life contrast, we, we will take this this little hour of our time every week, and we will do so again this week to entertain and inform you, our listeners out there. And we have engaged listeners, so we have opened our listener tweet bag to <laughs> Matt Martin, who is at Biotic Hamster on Twitter, asks a great series of questions. So we will take each one individually, and this revolves around playtesting, including the D&D Next playtest and the new 1D&D playtest, which a new packet dropped. And that's what we are going to be doing today, is spending our full time after a little bit of news discussing this new packet. So Matt's first question. For those of us that weren't there for the D&D Next playtest, other than monster CRs, which we mentioned, uh, what are some things that you recall that didn't get playtested? Uh, so, Teos, you, you have a better memory than than I do well, since you were so young that, and spry. I think that was the first thing is kind of like, oh, yeah, what? But there were tons of things is, is the kind of easy answer. Uh, because a lot of the focus was on just these certain aspects that sort of are the core of the game experience. Um, an easy one is high-level play. So there was basically no play testing for high-level play in 5e, nor in 4e, nor 3e. So almost all the packets were, you know, low-level adventures, you're making new characters, you're running through the system and, and providing feedback on, on levels, you know, one to three. Um, so there was practically no high level play, but again, that's not new. That's basically the way it's always been, um, mm -hmm. which is great. So there were a lot of interesting conversations about high level play this week. And I think it comes from that fact that high level play is never really given its due in terms of play testing. Um, yeah. but there were things like, you know, downtime was just something that showed up in the DMG and everybody's like, oh, wow, look at this new system. No play testing at all. Um, the exploration rules were not things that we really got to read over and, and opine on. There were some minor aspects around them, uh, but more things that ended up being like in the player's handbook than within the DMG. Um, any of those systems you see, like siege weapons or anything like that, those were all things that just got filled in at the end. And of course, there were a lot of things that we play tested, but changed drastically. So like, I think the version of the Rogue that came out, which is awesome, uh, is not at all the, the a version that we play tested, right? There are aspects of right. it, but but that that was a thing where they took the feedback and they just made changes at the end, and that happened to several classes. So. Yeah, and it's also important to differentiate between public play tests and maybe behind the scenes play testing, yeah. because and I was part of that, yeah. and I think you probably were as well. So, yeah. so like I know those two. Yeah, D and D Next had a had a public play test, obviously, but it also had a behind the scenes play test where certain things were play tested either before the the public play test was done so it was sort of pre-checked and then checked or it or just new rules wholesale uh so we don't know what's being play tested privately with 1D and D uh, at least I don't because I'm not involved with it. Uh, but, you know, I know that for 4th edition I was part of the play test which was not a public play test. Um, and then for fifth edition, 
or D and D next, I was both, you know, playtesting privately and then used doing the public playtest as well. And I keep a folder. Uh, I mean, I have an old, a folder where I would put every iteration of Five E of D and D next playtests that happened, and there are fifty two individual folders that I have that represent sort of a time that Wizards sent me something either as the open playtest or the closed playtest. And so, for example, the last open playtest was September twentieth, twenty thirteen, but I have folders that go to 2014 because those private play tests continued and it was you know, public yeah. knowledge that I was part of that, but I can't yeah. tell you what's in them. Exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah. And, and, and like you said, 4E had play tests, so they were very hurried. That's been acknowledged publicly. I was part of that as well. Um, and Sean was, um, but before that, it's kind of interesting to note that nobody thought you needed to publicly play test a game. Like, why would you invite these idiots to opine? And in <laughs> fact, how would you even get the right idiots in the room? Right. And so yeah. this is a really, a, a very brand new approach to things. The idea of play testing your game is relatively new as a concept. And there's you know, the vast majority of role-playing games that come out today are not play tested in some public fashion. Sure. Designers create them. And they yeah. use their smarts to do that and their prior project experiences and their knowledge of games and they make it and they ship it and you play it. And that's true of most games that are highly acclaimed. Take something like the Aliens role-playing game, right? Super yeah. fun game. There was no public play test for that, right? Yep. And it's yeah. great. And that's, that sort of leads into the next question, which what do you think has been the impact? Do you think some things may maybe got through that shouldn't have? And I think one of the impacts of public playtesting that we've seen has nothing to do with game design and it has everything to do with marketing and with managing expectations. Because what happened with fourth edition was there was a closed playtest. Wizards took all the feedback, made the final version of the game. And then people were seeing it for the first time when it was being released. And it was such a drastic deviation from what had come before that there was an outcry there was a revolt yeah. against it if there had been a public play test there sort of would have greased the skids greased the wheels a bit yeah, and people right. would have known what to expect or at least the hardcore most vociferous people would have known what was coming and they still might not have liked it they still might not have played it they might have revolted against it equally but it's less likely to do so if you have a little bit of buy-in this is your game now because you were part of it yeah. tends to help things go over better. So I think if we step aside from game design questions, what has the impact been of these public play tests? They've made the final version more palatable to many people. Yeah. Yeah. And on, on whether things got through that shouldn't have, yes, but that's always going to be the case. If your play test was 10 more years in length, that would still be the end. You, you can't design a perfect game, partly because you can't understand, even with all the playtest feedback, or if you watch tons and tons of games, you still can't do that. And and, and it's true, you know, like I, I know people who have run hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of 5e and still can't say, you know, how they would fix a particular element because it, it's not obvious. It is difficult and you'd have to take a chance on it at the end of the day. Right. Uh, you know, you could tweak things, but if the very core of, of what you're testing is at fault, 
than all of the smaller things, right? All the little abilities you get for your race or your class or all the feats that you're dealing with. You can't, you know, put a structure on a bad foundation and expect the structure to hold. And I say this as somebody who just poured foundation on a new structure. So (laughs) you can tell where my mind is, but, (laughs) and these role-playing games, especially D and D being a relatively complex, not the most complex, but a relatively complex game. You know, it's never going to be perfect. The math is never going to be perfect. And unless you know what the audience wants and then set a goal for the final version based on that, you are building your castle in the air Mm -hmm. a bit. And so one of the things that I wish I would see from Wizards of the Coast is a question like, how long should a D&D combat take? How many rounds, if they are, if there are five people at the table and it is a medium, what we, we would consider a medium difficulty combat, how long should that take? in time and in rounds. Once you have the answer to those questions, then you can begin to build a game towards that and you at least know what the goal you're shooting for is. But until those questions are asked and answered, you get a game that is supposed to be for everybody and therefore is perfect for nobody. Well, and because, you know, what we were told is, oh, this is not an addition change. This is you know, just uh, we're going to polish 5e, right? It's sort of how we were initially sold on this. And when you're just polishing things, fine. You don't have to ask those fundamental questions because you've, you've answered them before, right? It's whatever right. the answer was for the 5e design team and you're just polishing things. But as we see them change conditions, we see them change long rests, we see them change inspiration, we see them change, you know, what happens when you roll a critical hit. As you see that the team is making these fundamental changes, then you have to go back and say, well, you you need to go back and ask those questions, as, right. as you've said, because if you don't know what encounter length and what play experience you're trying to build, then how can you make the right choices, right? Mm-hmm. right. And and the one of the successes of D&D Next is they really went back to that, right? They First, they played through all the editions mm-hmm. so they could see what makes D&D sing in different editions. And then they came up with really broad level goals and then they started hanging everything off of those broad goals and always seeing, are we hitting our targets? And that, well, you know, not, I'm, and I don't mean to say it was a perfect process. It wasn't, but that type of approach led to that kind of success that we see with 5e. Yep. All right. So back to Matt's questions. Question three is one D a chance to fix it all. Are some things here to stay for better or for worse? Looking at you monster <laughs> challenge rating. Uh, so is one D&D the chance to fix it all? <laughs> yeah, maybe. It depends on what the team wants to do, right? Here's, I think this is the, the elephant in the room of all this process is it's not really clear what the team's goals are and how far they're trying to go. Uh, right now, I think D&D, one D&D feels like it's the difference between 3E and 3.5, which mm-hmm. is, say, technically compatible if you really, you know, if you were to argue it in a court of law. But yeah. the yeah. reality is everybody ended up buying new books right? because everything had changed too much for you to want to use the stuff in 3E. Uh, 1E and 2E is another good comparison, right? Like 
technically you could play with the other aspects. And I did, you know, we did and play often, but realistically they were different, right? One of them used Thacko and one of them didn't. Um, so I think that that question is really about what Wizards of the Coast is okay with doing. Are they okay with saying it's the same edition when it's not? Is the audience okay with that? Are third pub party publishers okay with that? Because for them, it's a, a giant headache. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the things the community gets to weigh in on is whether, mm -hmm. you know, no wizards, we want you to call this 6E because that's what it is. Um, right. And we want you to therefore fix these greater things. Because if it's not really the same edition, why are we holding back on fixing critical things? Mm-hmm. And why are we why are we doing this in the first place? Why are we getting one D and D slash five point five slash six E? Right? Do we need is it, it for a virtual tabletop? Right? Is it is it because Hasbro says we need more revenue? Is right. it because and now all of those things, while they shouldn't impact your design, they will impact your design. Yeah. Because if you need books that you know everyone is going to buy anew, then you need to change the game enough to make yeah. them buy anew. While you I can still say, well, it's compatible because, see, we use all the same terms. That's not what mm -hmm. that's what compatible means to some people, but not to others. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and you can have so many forms of compatible. Like right now, and we'll talk about this later, but, you know, someone can play the current player's handbook rogue and somebody could play this new rogue and they could technically work at the same table, but you're going to have one player looking at the other and going, I'm weaker. Mm -hmm. I want that version. Therefore my old player's handbook is dead. And we've right. seen this with things like, you know, Fizzband when they rewrite the dragonborn or any of these things where it's like, yes, it's technically compatible, but you have just really moved the game to a different place. Mm -hmm. And that is going to hurt how well it works together. Yeah, I think it's getting to the point where Wizards probably does need to think about explaining what the goal of all of this is in a new way, because it doesn't seem like it is what they said at the beginning, you know, like when they first announced like, oh, in 2024, we're going to do, you know, this. Mm -hmm. um, I, it, it almost needs, I think the, the public would benefit from having a vision around where this is going and why. Right. Um, and I mean, some of us would listen to what they say and go, yeah, that makes sense. Right. <laughs> Why are you putting this out? Oh, because it's the 50th anniversary of the game or the 60th or however, however far along we are. Uh, and, and you could say, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's a good, that's a good reason to do it. And, or they could come up and say, well, you know, we, we found flaws with the rules. So therefore, which is another tack that they have sometimes taken. So we want to fix these problems. And that's a little bit of a weaker uh, argument when you know that there are other business reasons behind yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, it. It's, well, it's hard. But that's important, right? I mean, it, tell me, and it's fine if you have your internal reasons, but you should be able to vocalize why a thing is done. Like this was a problem with the otherwise very excellent uh, fourth edition uh, relaunch, right? Um, oh, I can't think Essentials. Of right now. Essentials, thank you. When yeah. Essentials was announced, the company repeatedly struggled to tell us why it was being created and how compatible or not it was. And that inability to tell your audience why it's good hurts you, right? So 
I, I think with this, they need to be able to really like every person at Wizards should be able to say, here's why this is great. Mm-hmm. And and so far, the reasons we were sort of quasi told in a very loose way at the beginning do not match what you see in the playtest packet, right? You don't look yep. at the playtest packet and go, oh, yes, these were rough areas of the game that certainly needed to be addressed. Or, oh, yes, mm-hmm. this was a broken piece that certainly needed to fix it. A lot of this seems more like what you do when you're just choosing to make a 6 Right. Right. And so far, I mean, let's, let's be clear. We've only seen the first two packets and we could see anything coming, going forward, but what is sort of the thing that we've seen in every new edition of the game is the new edition makes things easier. It cuts, it goes back, it restarts, it goes and establishes a new baseline that is better for new players and allows existing players to absorb easily the new rules. You normally you're stepping back with the two packets that we've seen so far, rather than doing that, this new edition makes things more complex right from the start, right? It adds feats. And not only does it add feats as a non-optional thing, it adds many feats. (laughs) It, it sort of makes new categories of things that don't make things easier. They kind of make things more complex. Right. So far. more complex. You're right. Have, the classes and, are more complex. Huh. And so that makes me question in the past, you've done this reset because you need to reset the game. This seems like they're not quite resetting the game as making the game more complex, <laughs> which you can totally do, right? There's an audience that yeah. wants that. But is that why are they doing that? For what reason right. is the the adding complexity? Especially when all of the polls show over and over again that more than half of your player base is very new, very recent. Yep. Right? They're they're not the people that usually thirst for you know give me my level thirty play experience and give me you know, right. super complicated things. Yep. So last question: Has the last ten years been an extended play test? It's always a play test. Yeah. everything is is in many ways you know i think that's something that actually i think the first time i heard that was third edition where i assumed at some point they were like you know what we need a new edition and and what conversations revealed is they were always thinking about the next version they were always taking notes about what a new version should have and why um and I think that even if Wizard says publicly, this is one D&D, there is only one version to rule them all, uh, that no designer there will be unable to think about, you know, mm-hmm. if I could redo the blah, here's how I would do it in the next yeah. version. That's right. always happened. I mean, the only way there's not going to be a new version of D&D is if they make a new game and not call it D&D. Right. That's the only way that you're going <laughs> to get this being the final version or if an asteroid strikes the earth and puts an end to all life. <laughs> that's, that ensures it. So, so we have that to look forward to. So uh, Matt, I hope that helps. I hope that illuminates the way Teos and I think about these things. And uh, we will be talking a lot more about this uh, in a few minutes when we get to the newest unearthed arcana one D and D update. But first let's get to a bit of news. I saw that there is something going on in Great Britain called D&D Adventurer. 
It is a brand new part work that teaches you how to play the world's most popular tabletop role-playing game. What could that be? With an exclusive mm-hmm. adventure, easy step-by-step instructions, and all the background information you need to create your characters and become a D&D expert. So this is called a part work. And in British uh, terminology, it is a series of magazines issued weekly or monthly, which are designed to be bound together to form a complete course or book. So this is an officially licensed thing, but it's only available in Great Britain. And heavily involved in this, I believe, are two people that we know very well, two of our favorite people from the British Isles. Oh, Uh, man. You you know who I'm talking about. I do. Will Will Doyle. Stacey Allen. Stacey, you got it. They are brilliant. Uh, Yeah, I, I have sort of picked up that they are somehow attached to this. I saw the pictures of this. It looks amazing. It's like really cool looking, super great art. And it's it's all kinds of content that you're getting. And then also like miniatures and battle maps and stuff. And I just want it and I can't have it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So well, we probably... included the link in the show notes yeah. so you can, you know, find a British friend who will mail this to you. Yeah. And, you know, obviously it, it's using the name DND, so it's officially licensed. Mm-hmm. And probably they could only get the official license if it was limited to this one area where they, where they lived and, and worked. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope it, I hope it does well. It looks really cool. You know, this is something that we always talk about. We need these on ramps for new players and cool things that bring new, new people in and teach them how to play. So I'm going to keep an eye on this to, to see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, NPR's show called Code Switch has covered race in D&D. It's a show on NPR, National Public Radio, and it covers topics of race and identity. Their September 28th show was called What Dungeons and Dragons Tells Us About Race. Uh, they discuss the history of char- uh, character race from from Mr. Gygax's statements about biological determinism to recent problems with the Hadesi, uh ancestry race and spell jammer and even the latest playtest uh, packets. Uh, it acknowledges, the show acknowledges Wizards' attempts to improve, but it does a really a good job of summarizing and highlighting the many places where the game has been problematic on race or, or these different uh, identity issues in the past and uh, how they're continuing into the future. Yeah, Code Switch is a really cool uh, show. I have a couple of friends who who listen to you know every episode of this. I'm actually really looking forward to talking to them and say, so what did you think about that latest episode? And mm-hmm. see what they think. But um, but it, it has a nice conversational way of handling the topic where it goes through you know kind of character creation and it discusses in the game because I guess the, the the thing is the people who record Code Switch, the various team members are playing D&D campaign together and one of them is running it for the others. And so for the new players, introducing them to this and having them, you know, really experience the like, huh, why is the game set up this way? And then to share with them, well, guess what, you know, Gary Gygax thought and like, are you kidding me? Like, wow. Uh, so it's a really nice way of, of addressing it. And, um, and it just shows that, you know, D&D is going to continue to get this kind of attention as we move forward in time and progress with how we view things like race. And so that's where this playtest packet, right. Could really take some steps forward to do things like remove the term race. Yeah. 
Well, the I reason know my favorite part of this, I, I do know your favorite part of it. I do. The adventure at the very end of the show, they reveal what adventure they're playing. And I laughed out loud when they said it was Defiance and Flan. Yeah. That you wrote. Uh, yeah. I thought that was perfect. I mean, it's a great adventure. So no, no surprise, but I thought that was awesome. Well, I saw it pop up on Twitter and all it said was, you know, this show is discussing the problematic history of race and D and D and they play Sean's adventure. And I was like, <laughs> Oh no. So I'm just going to sit there and get hammered for, for a half hour about There's nothing you did. I, they, they liked the your adventure. part of it. Yeah, yeah. So I, that was, I wanted to know how they did though. I wanted to, to know how it turned out, but we didn't, we didn't get the, the finale. So right. uh, I'll have to just assume that, that they were able to rescue uh, the poor gnome and fight against those horrible, uh, horrible just... flan. Uh, no, the, the, uh, the, the police force of flan. Oh yeah. 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 You know, they're, wonder, they're pretty, yeah. Yeah. Some black fists, the black fists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. There is also a new YouTube video from one Mr. Teos Abadia about success in role-playing games. This one is the horrid truth about freelance pay. <laughs> so did you did you reveal the dark secrets of, of how much we actually make in this industry? I did. I, I ran through uh, the numbers in a couple of different ways to look at, you know, what projects add up to and what that means if you were to try to kind of live off of it. And uh, the, the, the answers scared me. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've been working in this industry for a while and I already knew it was bad, but when I looked at it, it was, uh, it was grim. And, um, but I think it's good. I, I appreciate the feedback, you know, folks who like, like the other day on Reddit, somebody was saying, you know, I often hire freelancers and this was useful to me mm-hmm. to see this. Right. So, and that's the kind of discourse that I was hoping for where, where, you know, people do get an understanding of what this means. Um, and a lot of it was because people will say, you know, X word rate, you know, 20 cents a word. Oh, that's amazing. And, but we don't really run the math of like, well, what does that mean? Like, like mm-hmm. what does that, that 20 cents a word, how many words do I have to write for it to be a livable wage? Um right which is a different answer in the U S than it is in some other countries. It's worse mm-hmm. than others, better in many. Um, so the next one will be on how you run a budget, which is the other side of it uh, to, to try to make these numbers somehow work, you know, how to balance that out. Well, I hope you are able to tell me how to do so because I could certainly use that mm-hmm. advice. So thank you for, uh, thank you for t- taking the time to do all of that. <laughs> sure. And now a couple product highlights. The first is from the amazing Rudy Basso and James Intracasso. Their new role-playing game experience is called To Be or Not To Be a Villain. Um, you play-tested this book, so tell us about it. I did. This was super fun. When I first heard the premise, uh, I was like, okay, they're going to be a whole bunch of us playing together. Uh, it supports up to nine players, and it's based on Hamlet. And we all have these kind of agendas, but we we did it with 5e. It also supports the Zweihander RPG. Um, and you basically are assigned kind of goals and secrets, and you have special moves that you can take. And you then kind of interact with one another in a very kind of freeform, almost party game type feeling experience to try to accomplish your your goals. And then there are things that happen each day and events that you all have to go on, which forces everybody to come together and work through things together. But of course, you're still doing your machinations. 
uh, it's an awesome experience. I, I highly, highly uh, recommend this product as a, as a really neat example of what you can do with 5e or as Y-Hander to create a really neat sort of experience for everybody. It's the kind of thing you could run for people who've never played D&D before and they would really get into into it. Really great. Okay, cool. I, I've ordered pre-order. it. it, it comes, oh, yeah. I think it comes out in March, but you can pre-order it now, uh, which always helps their sales greatly, since especially since it's Simon & Schuster. Yeah. Um, that, that makes a big deal if you pre-order now. Okay. So do you actually roll dice? Yes. Yes, you okay. do. Um, and so it's not just like a LARP, you know, if, if you've ever seen a LARP or participated in a LARP, it's, it's not, uh, to that level of freeform. You are using 5e, but you are, or Zweihander, but you are, um, you are kind of, you have phases to the day. And okay. so imagine yourselves in Denmark, you know, being part of the Hamlet cast and you have, you are a particular person and you are trying to do various things while sort of D&D-ish things will happen, right? Like, oh, let's say a, a dragon showed up and we need to investigate its lair. So gotcha. we all must go there and handle this thing that has happened while nice. we're all trying to do our little things and learn what everybody's up to. Gotcha. Uh, so it's very backstabbing, intriguey kind of thing. Nice. Uh, and I was, uh, well, I think technically I threw myself out a window because I had to, because uh, <laughs> I was going to die as secrets were revealed of things I had done for the greater good, I think, mostly. Of course. But yeah, I was, uh, right. it, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty good. Uh, and, and is there a game master? So there, there are two game masters, but a lot of what they're doing is sort of uh, handing secrets and, okay. and kind of moving the phases along. It's less of that, like, um, you know, running monsters and things like that. It's more like handling the events. It's a little bit like an event organizer okay. uh, role that they play, which is cool because that also makes it so you don't have to, you could be pretty chill with the level of knowledge around five years Y hander gotcha. and run yeah. this uh, and still have it be awesome. Nice. Looking forward to reviewing that when it actually gets into our clammy little pause. Mm -hmm. The second and final product highlight is Stars Over Stormrack by friends of the show, Mike Shea, Scott Gray, and Jeff Stevens. Stars Over Stormrack is a short adventure for four to five characters with an average character level of four. It is The product is designed to act as a bridge between the starter set adventure, Dragons of Stormrack Isle, and the Spelljammer adventures and space adventure, Light of Xerxes. This just went up on the DMs Guild within the, like the last 24 hours. So it is there. And if you like the work of Mike, Scott, and Jeff, you can find it there. There is a link in the show notes. Wow. Mike, Shay, Scott Gray, and Jeff Stevens. That's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, I will be picking this up in, in no time. Uh, yeah. It just came out. So I haven't had a chance to look at it. But, I, but I've been hearing Mike and Scott talk about it. And I like what they're doing. Like, this is one of these products. It reminds me of the fall of Elturel mm -hmm. that uh, Anthony Joyce and um, yeah. uh, uh, Justice Remy and Armand put together yeah. where it was, you know, like the adventure sort of has a gap to it. Let's mm -hmm. fix that, right? Let's let's right. recast this and give you a, a really great experience. So you go into the main adventure having an awesome time. And that's what this product is doing as well. Yep. This this adventure being there increased the chances that I will run a Spelljammer game by about 80%. So <laughs> yeah. that's that's good. That's what you want. That's why you have an open gaming license. 
Yes. Everybody must get to Flapjack somehow. Exactly. Do, do you know who Flapjack is, Sean? I believe that is a flump uh, pirate. Indeed. Yeah. 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 I remember these things. It's all I remember. I can't remember my phone number, but I remember that. That's good. And That's I do remember that we do need to do a main topic today. Yeah. And this main topic today, we have been reviewing 5e, going through the player's handbook and discussing the rules in detail. But we were rudely interrupted yet again by another playtest packet drop. This one, this Unearthed Arcana, looks at expert classes in 1D&D. Uh, I did not watch the video that accompanied this release, so I will let you talk about what Jeremy Crawford talked about. Well, you know, you talked about sort of how uh, playtests serve the function of sort of smoothing people over and, and, and making them sort of more accepting of what's coming. Oh. And that's certainly what this video did, right? It dropped the day before the packet and it's Jeremy talking through, you know, here's what you're going to find and, and here's why. Um, and it gave a nice high level overview. We are going to see classes and subclasses, feats, conditions, new skill check and attack roles, updated crits. Um, he said that they're looking at the playtest feedback, but he seemed to suggest that this was sort of all planned rather than responding to feedback from the first playtest option. Mm -hmm. I understand saying that. I would personally guess that they are looking at results as they come in because it doesn't take long for surveys to become statistically relevant and for mm -hmm. future entries to do very little to move the needle one way or the other. Um, sure. So I would suspect that they would smartly be looking at things as they go along. But um, it, it's interesting what one of the things that this playtest packet does and the video did is talk through the extent to which we're going to see things. And so we'll, we get a sidebar in this packet that says, here's what's coming next. Revisions of every single class, 48 subclasses, new spells, new feats, new weapon options for some classes. What? A new mm -hmm. system for creating a home base for your characters. What? Revised encounter building rules? What? New and revised monsters. Didn't I just get monsters of the multiverse? So, you know, I just look at this list and I think, Sean, this is 6E, right? Yeah. Yeah, if they actually end up making all of these changes, then it cannot be called compatible with any sense of anything but irony. Yeah. Uh, if you revise your encounter building yeah. rules, every adventure right. is no longer done according to your current rules. Right. Maybe you can still run it and it's okay. You know, you make little tweaks on the side, but it is different. And if your mm -hmm. monsters change in any fundamental way, all of your old monsters and all your old ventures, well, they're all from a previous edition <laughs> in my book. Yeah. And they said they got over 40,000 people who completed the first survey, right? Pretty good. That is not that as is... high as I thought, given how many people downloaded it. You know, the number of downloads mm -hmm. was way bigger than this. Yeah. Um, but that's still really good. I mean, 40,000 people filling out a survey is, yeah. is good. That's, that gives you a lot of data that you want. I will still say it's always important to say that the people that are online and tend to see these things and do these things are an audience, not mm -hmm. the entirety of the audience. And that's important sure. for both us and wizards to remember. Yep, for sure. Uh, so let's take a look. Well, just a, an overview of what's what's in the, the packet. Uh, it is the three classes that they are now calling the expert classes, the ranger, the bard, and the rogue. They call them that because all of them get the expertise ability. Um, 
they divide the rest of the classes like the rogue, the bard and the ranger experts into class groups. Um, so mages are sorcerers, warlocks, wizards, priests are clerics, druids and paladins and warriors are barbarians, fighters and monks. Uh, any thoughts on that? It's interesting how this deviates from fourth edition, which had the focus on divine arcane martial psionic, which, you know, the power mm -hmm. source concept, which mm -hmm. felt actually fairly intuitive in almost all cases. It's never going to be a perfect fit. Uh, right. This whole experts thing, it's almost like they started with the one that makes the least sense, uh, but it's like, okay, like, I yeah. never would think of these three, three, these three classes as being, you know, the three amigos that are all yeah. similar in some way. Um, yeah, and, and and hinging them upon expertise is interesting. Um, it's fine. You know, you've got to yeah. have something to deal with. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you said, fourth edition went with power types, right? Mm -hmm. So there was primal, divine, arcane, uh, yeah. and martial, which made sense because you could, um, you could then, since you also had the the qualifiers of strikers, defenders, yeah. controllers. Uh, then you could say, well, who's the primal defender? All right. That's the shaman or whatever it right. was. Uh, and you could basically like the alignment chart, make a nice little chart and stick a character neatly into yeah. each of these categories. Uh, yeah. This does less of that. And my, you know, my first question was, why did they do this at all? Um, right. You can do it to say a rounded party will have one person from each one character class from each of these groups. Um, and they say that, you know, they, they said that yeah. in the video that oh, well, one way to make a well-rounded yes. party is to have members of each group. Right. But we already know from this far into fifth edition that you can make a very good warlock healer and you can make, you know, a very good blah tank. And so it's it all just, they all cross yeah. into each other's category, I would argue, more than they should. So it's it's a strange, it's a strange grouping. And the way that I think of the grouping is this is a design thing. Mm -hmm. And what you're trying to do is say you know, I'm going to give you new feats, choose from the export list, or I'm going to give you new spells, choose from, you know, this list. And this is totally the kind of stuff where I go, fine, but what, weren't you trying to make a compatible edition chain, you know, revision that just polishes things? And this is the kind of thing you do when you re-envision an edition. Right. And, and I haven't been sold on this concept yet. Right. It's a totally new concept. Yeah. My first thought was, do you really need these class groups? And my second thought was, if you do need these class groups, you're creating a new edition because you are using these class groups to do something within the rules that that qualifies something or quantify something or or gate something off that only these class groups can use these things, which, yeah, which becomes mm -hmm. the the DNA of a new edition. Uh, yeah, they, they also feel... Um it feels dangerous to do this kind of delineation. Like the power source idea in 4E was fine because it, it was a, a thing that didn't fight other aspects of the game. Right. This potentially does to try to sort of create these sort of buckets of classes. Mm -hmm. We'll, we'll right. have to see. <laughs> right. Because as soon as you start creating buckets and make special rules about buckets, the the minute that you make exceptions, now you are yeah. confusing 
not only new players, but veteran players with, okay, you can only do this with this bucket unless this list of four things and you begin cross-referencing and it's, it makes the game harder to understand for, for everyone. And the designers get painted into a corner and we'll see that as we get into some of this other, these other changes that I think they are, it already feels a little bit like they're painting themselves into corners uh, for people who don't know that metaphor, right? It's the idea that if you're painting the floor of a room and right. you finish at the corner, you're trapped until it all dries. And so it's like right. you know, one of the oldest mistakes you could make would be paint yeah. yourself in a corner. And design-wise, yeah. you can do that too. So. Right. By setting up categories like this and then not being able to break out of those categories. So yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, Go ahead. Prim- primary ability, we, we again see that as with current 5e, the text emphasizes that you should focus on your primary ability. And I just thought this was interesting because... I have to ask whether really the game should require this, right? Like, does a rogue that, you know, uses finesse weapons really need to always put the most points and dexterity? Is that what the game is built off of? Design-wise, does the game balance rest upon that? Story-wise, does it rest upon that? Maybe, I'm not sure, but I thought that was interesting that, you know, we're still digging into this. If you are a, you know, block class, choose Mm -hmm. charisma or whatever it is. Yeah, I, I I think it makes sense to say that because that that's the designers saying the math that we are working with assumes that you are going to have your highest ability in the one that affects your attacks the most, your defenses the most. If you go outside of that, if you give yourself a 10 in dexterity as a rogue, can you still play the character? Yes. Will you be most most likely underpowered? Yes. Now, can you be an advanced player and figure out a way to do it with strength and make all the numbers work? Absolutely. But that's the advanced player. Mm-hmm. You know, the basic player that yeah. sits down that's is fair. yeah. So that mm-hmm. that's that's them explaining to us how they want the math to work. <laughs> yeah. Which which I like. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. So one thing that Jeremy said that I thought was interesting, and then we can get into the bard. Um, there is now, uh, you know, in, in current fifth edition in 2014 version, you reach certain levels and roughly every four levels and you get to say, okay, I'm either improving my abilities or I'm taking a feat. And if you're not using feats in the campaign, then it's just improving abilities. Mm -hmm. So now you must take a feat, but one of the feats is called ability score improvement. (laughs) See what we did there? Yeah. So this way you must buy into feats, but the feat could be always ability score improvement. And Jeremy seemed to sort of say that this is like, you know, um, this still allows the same sort of no feats option as before, to which I go, sure, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Except that every feat that I've seen, I didn't read every one word for word, but every feat that I looked at had a, half ability score bump or you know a plus one where whereas the uh ability score improvement feat gives you a plus two to one ability or a plus one to two different abilities every feat gives you a plus one to at least one ability so yeah it it makes it fascinating yeah it makes it to me mm -hmm. sorry go ahead i'm cutting off no i was gonna say it, it makes it suboptimal to choose that ability score uh, since you can only get up to 20 yeah. using it, 
then you're, you're you're losing a little power for the most part if you do that. Yeah, and, and the tech the, the the way that most people do things now is they'll usually take uh, an ability score improvement option early to get your numbers up. And as you start getting close to 20, well, you, you're going to mostly do feats, um, but it's sort of race to 20 and make feats as much as possible if you're playing a high level character. But um, yeah, this does make it, it almost to where ability score improvement feels like you're making the wrong choice and, and you mm-hmm. will be <laughs> given the, the way the new feats work. So that's fascinating. Yeah. And feats allow you to make a more unique character. Right. There's there's no doubt about it. And that's what a lot of people want. Uh, I mentioned on the Eldritch Lorecast last night that some people never play D&D, but they sit down and make 100 characters mm-hmm. and they want to have the fun of having the most options out there to make the most unique character, whether it be just unique to tell a fun story or unique to be the most powerful or unique to do the weirdest thing, the best I can get my initiative up to plus 20. Good for you. Rock on, Uh, have fun. (laughs) Um, Now, is that the same as playing the game? No. Uh, Playing the game involves sitting down with a group of players and, and rolling the dice and telling stories and getting outcomes. Um, And there's always going to be like, there is a, friction between D&D as a storytelling vehicle and as a game, there's always friction between the people that want to do the most unique things, build the most unique characters and the E and creating the rules to facilitate ease of play. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you want to weigh those two things very carefully as you design your game to figure out what you want to do more. Do you more want to make unique characters or let people make unique characters? Or do you want more to have a, an easy play experience? There's another angle to that too, that, that um, worries me a bit about the direction here that it it doesn't go as far as I had feared it might. Um, But if you think of like the fighter in third edition where every level was choose a feat, Mm -hmm. when you do those kinds of things, you, you, you know, what is a fighter becomes like a who knows, right? Mm. Um, but when we know that, you know, a rogue, for example, will have cunning action, that becomes iconic and we all understand what a rogue is and what they do. They sneak attack, they have cunning action. We might take choose a subclass that changes it up and makes it interesting, but those mm. features provide us a common basis and iconic feel for it. And the more that we change away from that into customization, the less that we can all hang our hat on what it means to be that class and i think that is a very important thing that also needs to be considered it's not just ease of play which is super important to me but also do these classes tell a reliable story that everybody's going to carry around in their brain and collectively Mm -hmm. right yep and one of the problems with having many many options to plug into this machine that we use um called D is when there is an optimal most powerful path to take people more people than not are going to take that path and ignore any other paths right because they don't you don't need to sit down and figure it out yourself now you just go onto the you know, the character optimization boards and you yeah. will get the top 10 
you know, highest armor class builds, the top 10 damage per round builds. And when, when that outlet is available to hive mind, uh, the, the best build, all of these other options become not useless, but they become second rate citizens in the rules community uh, yeah. that, that they're supposed to be uplifting. And it just, it doesn't do anything for the game except optimize the characters at the table to the detriment of cool stories and unique characters. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And and it, it's one of those things that's really hard to see up front until you see it in play, right? Things like silvery mm -hmm. barbs as a reaction where, you know, you can just prevent hits or prevent crits and those kinds of things just impact play in ways that you may not understand just looking at the written text. It's when you see mm -hmm. it in play table after table, you go, oh, this has a big, big effect on the game. Yep. All right. So shall we get into the bar? Yeah. Okay. So the bard was the first uh, class that was put in to the packet. It's got a little short intro uh, text. I'm actually going to flip over to the document itself. Yeah, it's basically uh, the same. It's a it's a chunk out of what used to be in the player's handbook. And this is always the kind of thing that fascinates me. It's like, are you just giving me a little chunk because that's all you want me to worry about in this at this point or are you going to shorten out are you going to cut a bunch mm -hmm. of material and i hope the answer is this is just giving us a taste right because because i love the things that are written that don't show up here <laughs> which is interesting yes. this is my least favorite of the pieces they took but uh, you know okay yeah yeah they might just be uh, highlighting the mechanics mm -hmm. rather than the the story behind the bards uh so they talk about starting equipment proficiencies etc cetera, etc cetera. any anything of note there that you wanted to mention so there are some player friendly things like um the player's handbook says choose three skills and here they are allowing you to do that but also giving you suggestions and we see yeah. that in in other classes that have sort of a pick they will say take blah 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 or pick any three um okay. a lot of the table is the same as before um Starting equipment is slightly simpler. Short sword instead of um, whatever whatever it used to be before. I think rapier. Um, mm -hmm. And short sword is now a simple weapon, not martial. And it's interesting to see those kinds of changes and what might be there. Like we'll see this a lot that the short sword is now the the thing you start with. And is that because they know it's not the best choice, so therefore start with a short sword and later upgrade to something else? I could buy into that, but it's an interesting change there to, to sort of do that and to make that happen then they make it a simple weapon so very kind of interesting there um a big change which you don't notice at first is the table for the class says in the current version the 2014 version spell slots per spell level mm -hmm. and if you look at the table it's very easy to at first go like oh yeah it's the same numbers you know nothing's changed here except now it says that it's the uh, spells, I think it's known or something. Prepared spells per level. Prepared spells. Yeah. And this now is a big change that's happening. We'll see this with the Rangers well. Your number of spells that are prepared are equal to your number of spell slots, whereas they used to be different. Mm -hmm. So it's the same number. Um, so if it says two first level spells known, uh, you might prepare color spray and disguise self 
and you can cast you know one of them twice or both of them each once um and they give you recommendations for each level of spell which i thought was kind of cool so so they'll actually say like at level two you know add these spells to your list or choose them off of the listing Mm -hmm. and the other big change here is that the the listing is off the arcane spell list Mm -hmm. and this is where we get into a substantial change because the bard currently has a bard spell list and it's tailor-made and it includes sort of a pick of a very jack of all trades approach of like this healing spell this attack spell this you know blah 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 now it's use the arcane spell list and only those that are divination enchantment illusion or transmutation and there's some things like thunder wave and shadow that you're like all oh, those sounds so sonic you know now you don't mm-hmm. get them hey guess what we changed them so they're no longer evocation and now they're transmutation so they're right. now on your list yep and this is that kind of painting yourself into a corner thing where it feels like we're moving pieces around just to fit a concept and that's great but it could all fall apart if you're not careful yep yep for sure yeah and um, i was confused by the spell list at first i didn't know yeah. i missed the, the little fragment of a phrase that said that your spell slots are equal to your prepared spells so i was like huh you can prepare spells, but how many spell slots do you have? And I'm looking around and I can't find it anywhere. And then I finally went back and read it. Like I had to read it three times before I finally saw that phrase that said that. I was like, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, the other thing is cantrips are prepared now. So you can swap out what cantrips you know for the day, which is yeah. a big change from 5e where the cantrip is something you learn and you're done with. Yeah. And now you can swap those out, which I thought that was sort of surprising. I don't super love it as a concept, but you know, I can see players enjoying that. Yeah, and in some places, cantrips are called cantrips, and some places they're called zero-level spells. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that's something that they're working on changing or testing or, uh, you know, the, just the the linguistics of it. But what did you think about Bardic Inspiration? Oh, man. That is really interesting. So it is now a reaction to add the die and the die is the same and it increases in the same way as before starting at d6 mm-hmm. add the die to a d20 test that failed i don't like that use failure because there are a number of cases already in 5e where a higher result is better and now saying specifically failure prevents the use from that right um so i i I get that you don't want to say before the DM says whether the role succeeds or fails. Like, I don't think any of us really like that language, but Mm -hmm. just being able to add it to a, to a D 20 test to me would be better so that I can bump things up. Uh, There are all kinds of roles that, that aren't failures, but you want to see a higher result appear. Um, The, Things you can do with Bardic Inspiration is now add it to the die of a D20 test that failed, which is probably some ally you're looking at um, as a reaction. You can also do it to as a reaction to heal a creature that just took damage. And I think this is a way of trying to compensate for the fact that they, they get fewer healing spells mm-hmm. and they no longer have the Song of Rest. So this is a way to try to help with that. Yeah, uh, okay. They, they do that. Yeah, you're right. They don't have Song of Rest. They have songs of restoration, which are the healing spells right. uh, that, that you end up getting at second level. Uh, I don't mind the D20 test reaction to use your, the Bardic Inspiration die. 
-hmm. I am playing a bard right now. I think I'm up to about 10th level and I, I will, you know, give out the inspiration and I like that it's a reaction in this play test because it's a reaction for me as the player, (laughs) right? Because, you know, I give it to the barbarian and he will miss on an attack roll. And I'll say, but wait, 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 don't forget you have the Bardic Inspiration die. Oh, yeah, uh, roll the Bardic Inspiration die. Oh, I succeeded or failed or whatever. And so it's it's already literally for the player a reaction on a failed yes. D20 test. So that brings it more in line with how it's actually used at the table now. Yeah. So I'm okay and, with that. And the worst is like you end a, a combat or something and you know the person didn't need your die, but someone else could have. So I, I agree with you. I like that being right. a reaction. Yeah. Um the only thing here is that, you know, we've already seen 5e climb the number of off-turn actions. Mm-hmm. So this also adds to that. But but I think overall this is a win to make it a reaction. I just don't want it to say failure. Mm-hmm. Um the other thing is we're we're so wedded now to this proficiency bonus number of times per day. And mm-hmm. That is the case here instead of where yeah. it used to be your charisma bonus. That's generally worse for the players. The bard's going to probably have a higher charisma bonus than their proficiency bonus. So it's a little fewer times that you're using it, but you're probably yeah. more effective with it. So it's probably okay. Yeah. The, the, this, this whole number of times per day equal to your proficiency bonus. Designers love it. They love elegance. They love mm-hmm. to make one rule and have it work in all of these different situations and have it work well. And and it's it sort of does, but I think it favors multiclassing. And so one of the things when I go through new new classes is look at this what what I what has been termed over the years the one level dip, mm-hmm. and how much you can utility you can get out of that for the price that you pay. And this is one of those things where at first level you get the ability to heal twice per day. And you think, oh, it's just a D6. What, what's the big deal? You do it after someone has taken damage. So what do you do with this die? You wait until your fighter gets knocked unconscious. You use it. The fighter is back up. You take a one level of bard and 19 levels of something else. You get to do this six times. Mm-hmm. That that makes a huge deal with high level play, you know, being able to use that reaction to stand someone up instantly, true. six times over, and then well, if you only took it, if you only took it at first level, you can only do it, you know, six times per only mm-hmm. six times per long rest. If you take seven levels of bard, you can do it seven, you know, six times per short rest. That that's very powerful even though it doesn't seem like it, if you just read it as a first level ability. Yeah, um, that's true. And yeah, so I those are the things the I look out bonus for. Bonus times per day. I, I also yeah. tend to think that like, there, there is a, a truth to static numbers, right? Where you just say, you can do this mm-hmm. twice, right? Uh, yeah. And, and, and should it really even scale? And, and the sort of assumption that things should always scale up, not necessarily because your adventuring day tends to be pretty similar, so mm-hmm. it's not like you really want the game doesn't necessarily want you to do things more. Right. You might want to as a player, but but what you end up doing is is just creating a power increase that is beyond what you'd expect. You know, how many times yeah. do we really want a bard to be turning a failure into a success 
or reducing someone from going unconscious. And that can be way too many times can be the answer when you do proficiency bonus. And we're always asked, or we ask ourselves, why is, why is there less high level play? And you can have a variety of answers and all of them may be true to a point. It could be that there's no support, no adventure support for high level play. Okay. There is, but let's say there's not, that would make sense. Um, You just don't play long enough to reach high levels. Yeah. Okay. But a lot of people will stop at seventh level and go right into another and different campaign. It's not that they stopped playing. It's just, they didn't want to play those characters anymore. Um, I think one of the one of the reasons that high level play doesn't get played as much is because of the complexity. Yeah. And so why add complexity when you have a good rhythm? Mm-hmm. Maybe add a little complexity, but not to the point where instead of choosing from five different things, you're choosing from 55 different things that you can do each turn. Uh, that might help facilitate high level play with a larger percentage of you, your gaming audience. I agree. I agree. The thing, when you see more and more things pile up, it's, it's everything that's piling up is making your high level play harder to get to. Right. Yep. Um, so level that's level one, level two, you get expertise. We're going to see that later that we'll get expertise again at level nine. So two skills. One of the things that we're going to see across all these three classes is because of this getting expertise multiple times, you, um, the number of skills that your party members will be able to create a, a high role in or a medium role consistently is going to really climb. And that's an impact on the game, right? It impacts all the DCs and so on. Um, so I think that's interesting. Uh, Songs of Restoration, as you mentioned, is now a feature that instead of the short rest boosting your, your spending of a hit die, you now get um, a bunch of healing spells to make up for the fact that they are not on your arcane list. Um, Mm -hmm. You get some healing spells and that does help, but there's still a lot of big differences. Like um, revivify is gone. Right. And so uh, in fact, it's sort of funny to think of like some people are mentioning like, you know, critical role, you know, some of these classic moments that have been done uh, now can't be done. (laughs) How does, how do the critical role players, feel about these changes you know with like to their their class their their characters that are very well known undergoing yeah. these changes that's interesting yep yeah um, so at second fourth sixth eighth and tenth you get healing word lesser restoration mass healing word freedom of movement and greater restoration respectively yeah yeah and those don't count against your spells prepared uh so that al- already throws off the chart it's it's no longer like yeah, three, three first level, three second level, one third level. Now it's mm-hmm. you have three, three and one spell slots, but yeah. you know, four, three, four and oh, one yeah, good point. prepared. Uh, and then if you take a certain subclass, which we'll talk about in a second, that chart gets thrown off even more. Uh, That's fascinating. So anyway, yeah. So third level, you you could start to choose your subclass. Uh, the subclass that they included here was the dreaded College of Lore, pretty much the basic um, mm-hmm. subclass for that. But we'll we'll get to that in a second. Um, at fourth level, we we get our first feat, unless we're human, uh, and then we get yeah. one before that. But uh, yeah, well, you get and your our first... background feat and your background feat. Sorry, I forgot that they did that. Um, yeah, it could so, be your third feat or your second feat, depending yeah. on how you And there's a whole section on feats that we will uh, get to, probably not even today, but probably right. next week. 
uh, fifth level jack of all trades. This is the, if you're not proficient in a skill, you get half your proficiency bonus added to that skill when you make an ability check surrounding that. Yeah. And a lot of the, the, if you've looked through this, a lot of these benefits are sort of the things we'd expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that happens is the subclasses have moved around and we, we, we've talked about this before when we looked at Strixhaven, which had an unearth arcana that tried to give everybody the same subclass to yep. explain what college you were in. And that fell apart because it really hurt to have everybody on different set situations. We're going to see that all three classes now get the same levels where they get subclasses. This is a great fix because mm-hmm. that was a design problem. So now it used to be that like levels three, six, and 14 were subclass levels for the rogue, but now level 10 is another subclass level for the rogue, which is great. It standardizes it across all the classes to have the same number of subclass features and to have them at the same levels. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is interesting to me that they, they're at least with the ones we're seeing here, at least all the experts are the same and, and that they start at third, right? They didn't choose say second level to choose your subclass. That's an interesting choice. Yep. Um, level 11 magical secrets lets you choose arcane divine or primal spell lists and learn two spells regardless of school from them so you can dip into your own spell list arcane and choose two things that you were prohibited before or go to primal or divine Um, you also are going to get that at level 15 that's sort of an Mm -hmm. interesting way to try to get past the problem of what hasn't been granted to you yep levels 13 and 17 there's nothing written there. And I think that's sort of really uh, interesting to me that we have blank levels. Mm-hmm. So at level 13, you get your first seventh level spell. So that's a thing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not. And then at level 17, you get your first ninth level spell. Yeah. Uh, I think I just would have expected that um that would be a thing they would have changed to say, you know, no, no sort of seemingly dead levels. Of course, spellcasters do have yeah. something. I, I feel like a little candy is, is nice uh, beyond mm-hmm. just a new spell. But so it is. Yeah. I, I, I understand that players want a new toy at every level. I don't know if that's best for the game. <laughs> sure. Uh, no. Just straight up. Don't know mm-hmm. if that's best. Maybe, Maybe it is. Maybe it's great. Uh, maybe it's not. So yeah. we'll find out. Uh, at level 15, as Teo said, you get more magical secrets. So you can choose uh, more spells from different spell lists. Uh, at level 18, you get superior bardic inspiration. So whenever you roll initiative, you regain two of your expended bardic inspirations. And- this is a fascinating change yeah. because this is what used to be your level 20 capstone benefit. Mm-hmm. And they've done this for all the classes, we're told. Your level 20 feature is now level 18. And there's so many things that trip me up here. But to try to say it quickly, look, you already told me nobody gets to play to level 18. So you moved it from 20 to 18 so that theoretically I get to enjoy it longer. But... I don't know that you've really mathematically actually given anybody any real benefit in terms of number of people who play this. Um, and then level 20, you said, take an epic boon, which is hilarious because we had a question about epic <laughs> boons in our tweet bag where you and yeah. I both panned epic boons as a thing. Uh, and right. now it's like everybody gets an epic boon at 20. 
which you just told me design wise was sort of a problem to give something at level 20, you're not going to use. I I found it all very fascinating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And, you know, I think that at this point they are married, whether it's an arranged marriage or a marriage of, of convenience or a true love, they're married to levels one to 20. Uh-huh. And I, w- I would have loved to get a play test packet that goes level one to 10 uh-huh. and give me there, give me one thing every level and make it actually mean something every level. And let's see what, let's see a game built that way. Um, if you can, if it's we, called Shadow the Demon Lord. It's really good. Well, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, uh, but a and d game that, yeah. that, uh, that does that and give us, you know, three months to play test that (laughs) and see how we enjoy it. One thing that's interesting about this capstone move is it makes, you're talking about multi-classing before this means you can multi-class and still get your capstone benefit. So you could take two levels of something and still get that level 18 capstone. I thought that was sort of interesting for the, for the people who like to sort of max min max like that. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Uh, so th- that's the bar. I think we've pretty much well, gone over. There's the College of Lore. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. I'll just very quickly say uh, level yeah. three, you gain uh, three skills. And then there's wording that says, you know, if you already have one of these skills, you can choose something else, which I'd like that wording to be somewhere else as a standard thing into the game, not in specific places. Because there's some places that don't allow it. And that's weird. Like you should always be able to choose something if you already have the yeah. options. Um, and this is another example of where before they granted any three skills. Now they name them. Um, third, uh, third level, you get cutting words for your subclass features. This is the same as what the player's handbook did, but you can't use it on damage to reduce damage. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Sixth level, a new feature called cunning inspiration. And when a creature rolls your bardic inspiration, they roll the die twice, take the highest. At 10th, improved cutting words. When you use the cutting words feature, you can also deal psychic damage equal to your roll plus the charisma modifier that you have. Okay. And 14th is peerless skill, uh, but it now works uh, only on a failure as as the same as, as the old feature. That well, you can, you can do it on yourself. I think that's the difference, right? With, with other people, you can only... Uh, you can only affect other people's roles with your bardic inspiration with peerless skill. You can, you can do, do it, it yourself. You, okay. when you make an ability check and fail, yeah, when you make so you're, check, you're right. You're helping yourself. Yep. And it now says only on a failure. So again, it, it's that yep. same, it's got the same language as bardic inspiration that I don't like, which is it's failure dependent. You mm-hmm. can't do it to, to boost what you're doing. Um, so, you know, but yes, yeah. you, the the feature itself is is one that lets you apply that to yourself. Cool. Yep. yep. All right. Well, we got through one. <laughs> well, we got through the overview, which is important. Yeah, yeah. That's a big so one. what? Next week we will we will continue with this uh, packet, looking at the ranger and the rogue, along with their subclasses, and then feats and spells and all sorts of chunky goodness awaits us in this playtest packet. Indeed. indeed. So 
with that, I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank our uh, people who have backed our Patreon. You can back our Patreon at patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, where can people find you and your work on uh, socials? Find me at alphastream.org. From there, you can get the latest success in RPGs video link. Uh, you can hear me on the latest Dragon Talk and everything else I'm doing on Twitter at AlphaStream. Where do we find you, Sean? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Uh, you can follow the podcast Twitter at Mastering D&D. And you can also hear me on my second podcast, Eldritch Lorecast. You can find that on YouTube. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that we have Dovin, Divin, dived deep into the next yes into the next D &D, uh one one D D play test what are we going to do now uh we're going to make a party of all experts and kill some monsters and make some skill checks sorry there are no skill checks in D D. it's ability checks who knows <laughs>